Right? Okay, good. Okay, so here it goes. And again, this is from the book, uh, the biography of the Balatanya. In the year 5537, which is 1777 in the English calendar, Rabbi Shneer Zalman experienced a traumatic personal crisis. It was towards the end of that year that Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, who was one of the great Hasidic leaders of the time, and, and another colleague, Rabbi Avraham of Kalisk, known as Rabbi Avram Kalisker, they were all students of the Magid of Mezrich, together with a group of their followers, were due to leave for Eretz Yisroa. Rabbi Shneer Zalman felt a great urge to join them and likewise emigrate to Palestine. So again, this is 1777, so he is 32 years old at this point, pretty early on in his life. By nature, a peace-loving man, Rabbi Shneer Zalman did not cherish the battle which awaited him and which he would have to wage now single-handedly, meaning in his region of, of Russia and Lithuania, after his colleagues were gone. Moreover, he was imbued with a profound sense of love for his fellow Jews in general, <clears throat> and with deep respect and affection for Talmidei Chachamim. The strife between the Misnagdim and the Hasidim was very painful for him. For three months, he wrestled with the agonizing problem as to whether or not to join his colleagues and go to Eretz Yisroel. Finally, during Chalamoid Pesach, he reached a decision, he informed his family and his immediate circle of followers that he would be leaving for Eretz Yisroel right after Pesach. The Jewish community of Liozna, that's where he was the Rav at the time, at this point for about 10 years he was there, consisted of ordinary, simple, pious Jews. <clears throat> they revered the great Hasidic leader and his learned brothers who graced their humble community with their presence. Now the community was deeply grieved to learn of the impending departure of all its glory. Hastily, the seven elders of the community council convened to deliberate on what to do to preserve at any rate the institutions of learning which Rav Shnir Zaman had set up. The following resolutions were adopted. One, the houses which were occupied by Rav Shnir Zaman and his brothers and their families would be kept in good repair and readiness for their original occupants should they decide to return. Two, the council pledged to maintain and support all the married scholars, meaning the young Jungleite learning there, and younger students of the Chadorim, the Chadorim was another word for like yeshiva based midrash, of Rav Shneur Zalman, who would choose to remain in Liazna for at least one year. So they would support the Jungleite who were learning there and additional some other students who would pledge to stay for at least a year and see the community at large would provide for would further provide maintenance for an additional fifty new Talmidim, Yeshiva Bachram, if these if they would agree to provide instructions and guidance for them. Ribshnir Zaman was gratified to see the sincere concern of the community to maintain his Yeshivos and Bate Midrashas. He urged his disciples to remain in Liazna <clears throat> and to avail themselves of the community's generous hospitality. He arranged for them a curriculum of studies to be followed in his absence. So it really set up everything for his ready de departure. They're, they're leaving. He basically is 
moving and go, going to Eretz Yisrael. The whole town turned out to bid farewell to Rav Shnir Zalman and his brothers. In the courtyard of the main base midrash, a platform was set up from which Rav Shnir Zalman addressed his farewell message to the community, exhorting them to support the Talmudic students with esteem and affection. He blessed them to have sons and sons-in-law who would be Talmudic Chacham. In the beginning of the month of Eeyor, that's just a little bit after Pesach, Rabbi Shnir Zalman with his family and his brothers, that's Rabbi Yehuda Leib, Rabbi Mordechai and Rabbi Moshe, and their families, as well as some of his main Talmidim, left, left Liazna. They made their way to Moliev on the Dniester River. So they left, they're on the way. On the way, Rishnir Zalman tarried in various towns where he gave public discourses in Talmud, homiletic lectures in Musr, inspiring large audiences who flocked to listen to him with Yira Shemaim and Avas Hashem, and closer adherence to Torah and mitzvahs. To all pleadings that he, he not forsake his flock and he should remain there to guide their destinies, Vishnu Zaman replied with the following words of our Chachamim, and that is, your own life has priority. That's called Chayecha Kodmin. In other words, this is something he decided he needed to do. This was a decision he made, and despite the pleas of many to stay, he would say Chayecha Kodmin. He had to take care of his own life. That was priority. Some of his disciples remained to settle down in those various towns along the way of their journey. Throughout the summer of that year, Rishnir Zaman tarried in many districts there, taking leave of his followers with parting lectures and sermons. Finally arriving in Molev, his senior colleagues, Rabbi Mendel of the Tepsk and Rabbi Kalisker, did not disguise their displeasure at their colleague's intention of abandoning his post. So when he got to this larger area, and Rabbi Nachem Mendel of the Tepsk and Rabbi Avram Kalisker were there, they were preparing to make Aliyah, they were discouraging him from doing this. And they felt he should stay there to carry on the message of Chasidus. They urged him to reconsider his decision, asserting he had no right to leave the land, and deprived the Hasidim of his leadership at such a critical time. They also reminded him of the destiny which the Magad of Mezarich, his great teacher, had foreseen for him with the insurance of the eventual success of his life's mission. Rav Shnir Zalman spent three weeks there in the company of his senior colleagues, right, Rabbi Nachem Mendel and Rabbi Avram Kalisker. So he was there for three weeks. During the last week of their sojourn together, Rabbi Shnir Zalman spent long hours each day in private discussions with Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, his older colleague. They finally left without him, and he remained in Moalev for two more weeks, <clears throat> and during that time he kept himself in seclusion. Then he let it be known that he would return to Lithuania. Upon hearing of this momentous decision, his brothers hastily returned to Liazna with their families, although it was not known yet with certainty whether he would, whether Rishnir Zalman would also return to Liazna. In other words, he said he would stay in Lithuania, but he's not, he didn't say what town he was going to go back to. 
So would he go there or to a different town? There was some speculation he might settle somewhere else at the behest of his uh, colleagues. Or in a larger community like Minsk or Shklov. Arriving in Lyazna, Reb Shnir Zalman's brothers were pleased to find the Talmidei Chachamim and young Kolob uh, families engaged in diligent study according to the prescribed curriculum that Reb Shnir Zalman had left. Moreover, there were many new young faces, mostly from the vicinity of Lyazna, who had taken advantage of the community's offer to maintain 50 new tam- uh, yeshiva bachram. The return of Rishnir Zalman brothers to Lyazna revived the fervent hope of the community that Rishnir Zalman too would return and settle in their midst. However, in view of the conflicting rumor, rumors as to whether or not he would ultimately make that his community of residence, the Lyazna Community Council called a general meeting in the main base midrash. Before the appointed time, the base midrash was filled to overflowing and the women's section, too, had a capacity attendance. That was a whole town hall meeting going on here. Rabbi Shnir Zalman's brothers attended the meeting. They informed their community that their illustrious brother had indeed decided to remain in Lithuania, but had not yet decided where he would make his residence. Pending arrangements, he intended to come first to Lyazna, where his house was so thoughtfully kept in readiness for him and his families. So they resolved to send a delegation to Rav Shnir Zalman and extend to him an urgent invitation to make Lyazna his place of residence, to provide lodge, lodgings and board for up to 100 yeshiva bachram on a year-round basis, to provide free board and lodgings for 30 visitors each Shabbos for three days so people could come and spend Shabbos there in Lyazna, and this would be extended, this hospitality would be extended to 50 visitors during the Yom Tovim. Finally, during the month of Tishrei, when a lot of Hasidim came for the Yomim Noroim, the commu- community pledged to provide free room and board for up to 500 visitors. <laughs> so they, were, they made a good pitch to him, right? And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that they knew what he was really interested in? It wasn't, it wasn't his salary, right? Torah, you know, more Talmudian, more people to come and learn, be by the Tish, be there for Yom Tov, pay for them. That's what he wanted, and they knew that that's what he wanted, that that's what he was about. So the members of the community council appealed to Roshnir Zalman's brothers to join the delegation, to come with them and to convey their community's pledges, and they agreed to do this. Rav Yehuda Leib was probably the most famous of his brothers, uh, was to lead the de- delegation. In due course, the delegation returned with the happy tidings that Rishnir Zalman had favorably accepted the community's proposals and consented to take up his residence again in Lyazna. About that time, the first Hasidic emigres arrived in the Holy Land, so his colleagues, Rabbi Nachem Mendel of Vitebsk and Rabbi Avram Kalashker, who went to Eretz Yisrael, they're now arriving in Eretz Yisrael in the month of Elul of that year, 1777. And at the same time, he's heading back to Lyazna, his hometown. And on the way home, he has many stops. There are many scores of coaches and wagons augmented by new disciples and followers. They moved at a leisurely pace from town to town, 
stopping to rest uh, in each town. They celebrated Rosh Hashanah and that whole Yom Tov season on the journey. And it wasn't until the middle of Shavat of that year, which is several months later, that he returned to Lyazna. So just like nowadays when you hop on a plane and get there two hours later, <laughs> this is not a major distance relative to us that took them you know, five months to get home. By this time, the turbulence of anti-Hasidic agitation had abated considerably. The lull lasted for about three years. During this time, Rav Shnir Zalman was able to concentrate his attention on the yeshivas and the batamidrashos and on the dissemination of the teachings of Hasidus. What, a, what an, a fascinating chapter in his life. Can you imagine like, how history of Eastern Europe would, would have changed how, had the Balatanya moved to Eretz Yisrael? Because that means the whole, his whole teaching would have then been there in Israel, and his great son, the Mitla Rebbe, his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, and all the way down to our time. So what would have happened? Obviously, who knows? We could probably write a fascinating little novel about it. But it would have changed the course of so many things had he moved there and instead stayed where he was and promulgated Hasidus and Lubavitch became what it has become. Yeah, please, Mrs. Friend. Um, I don't know an exact number, but I'm going to guesstimate at about 100. He had a lot of Talmudian. And they all disseminated. Yes. So if he would have gone to Eretz Yisrael, Hasidus would have... It would have certainly continued. There were others, other great people who were promulgating, but he had a particular koach because he was such a great person in Torah, he was a tremendous orator, he was a powerful personality. He was a manhig and a leader of, of, of communities and people, so he was a real manhig. So I think things would have been quite different. Sure, other people would certainly step up to the plate, but especially in his region, which is white Russia and Lithuania, where he really carried Hasidus there and defended it so articulately and also with such great chachma. That would have been a, a different situation without him there. He was like the leading proponent of Hasidus in those areas where the bastions of Misnagdim were the strongest in, in Lita, in Lithuania. So what an interesting thing. Who, who knows, right, what history would have been like? Recent history. Yeah, please. Right. I don't think there was that much money there. It was a small European town, and they were mainly simple Jews. They were really putting themselves into it, so, and they made that that priority. I didn't get the impression that it was a wealthy community. You know, they, they were farmers and peddlers like, Jew, like Jews were, probably some, some business, and maybe there were some people with, with some money, but you don't get the impression that in any way it was a... Wealthy town. Look, it's Eastern Europe in the 1700s. Nobody's got too much money. Yeah, and they really put their, they, they stepped up to the plate and, you know, they supported that. Sure. I agree. I agree with you. It had to come from somewhere and they made the effort to do it. Yeah. Yeah, Gail, please. Maybe you want to rethink your contract. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I'll take I could go for the salary part. Chasidim yeah. would have been Spartan, maybe. Uh, had he gone to Eretz Yisrael, yeah. and Hassa would have influenced a certain number of Sephardic Jews, yeah. you mean, in, in Israel? Who knows, right? Who knows? Because <laughs> the, certainly the majority of Jews then in Eretz Yisrael were Sephardim at that time. Ashkenazim were really, really in the minority at that time. Yeah. Yes, Meira, please. Uh, Yes. As opposed to the, uh, they, they were not into spreading their teaching so much. They, they were they were really more so in in maintaining you know uh-huh. the the bastions of Torah that yes. they had built. They were not going out. They were they were maintaining, defending, learning. There were great people that they had. But you're right. This was a new thing. And it was it was it was really it was influenced by the Magad of Mezarich, uh-huh. who who sent his Talmudim out so, in order to do to accomplish this. Was yeah. this like Kirov or like what was the um, like why did they do that? Uh, there was no word at the time of Kirov, right? The very very cur- no current word. word. Well, there was there was no such movement as that. It was all about teaching Torah. Studying Torah, and and remember that the typical Eastern European Jew was very poor, very uneducated, yeah. and it was about spreading Torah to uh, to Klal Yisrael, at strengthening them, and at many levels, at the me- levels of Talmidei Chachamim, as you see, he was so interested in maintaining Talmidei Chachamim, yes. and then also to the regular, the regular people, the regular folks, like we saw at the very beginning. He was a, a big proponent of agriculture oh, yeah. and Jews working the land. He thought it was a much cleaner living for them, a much safer living for them. Yeah. So it was really about that, just the spreading of Torah and, of course, uh, the spreading of Hasidus. It wasn't outreach as we know it nowadays, which is a very, very recent thing in history. You didn't have that idea of outreach. But it was going out there and teaching Torah. And in a certain way... There are some very strong similarities. If you read some of the writings of the Lubavitcherevi Zatzal, who recently you know, passed away the last 15 years or so, now, he also was very much about spreading Torah. He once said a very interesting thing, which I, which I read, and I really appreciate it. He said he doesn't like the word kiruv. He says, why? He says, because who knows who's closer and who's farther away. So you be Makarius, maybe he's closer than you, right? So he didn't like that word. He said, what are we about? We're about exposing Jewish people to their heritage, to the heritage of Torah, and then they'll make their choices. And of course, that's what they, what they do so well. Spreading Torah. Torah, Yiddishkeit, Avodah Hashem. Sure, all those things. And that is a big part of what is... What is become, has become known as Kiruv, but they didn't see it that way. They were they were spreading Torah, yeah. you know, for for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, please. Yeah. I'm very very grateful for that uh, spreading <laughs> because uh, my daughter lives in Boise. I know. And, uh, in Boise. Yeah, and, and they just made a foundation there for for Orthodox Jews. And Who did Chabad? 
Right, yeah, so there are not too many other Jewish groups in Boise, Idaho, right? So it's, they're, they're out there doing the, doing the work. The shul? A shul there, mm -hmm. um, that had been there for, from the 1800s, mm. wow. but uh, it was always reformed. Mm -hmm. So this is a new thing. Thank you. Yeah, please go. When did Placidus start being called Placidus? Um, around this time, around the time of the Balatanya, they were start, started to be called Placidim, and in the time of the Magadim as a rich. They were originally, as I said, called a kat, like a group or even a sect when they were attacked very strongly. And at one point, they were called Karliners uh, because of the Hasidus in the town of Karlin, uh, where Rav Aaron Hagadol of Karlin was. But that might have been reg regional. So it's right around this time that they really uh, began to become known as Hasidim. Mrs. Fran, did you have your hand up? I saw. Yeah, yeah please. You mentioned what the um, what the uh, what the market said of him to him. Yeah, yeah. So earlier on, before the Magid had passed away, uh, he he had declared that the Balatanya had a very formidable formidable mission ahead of him, and that it would be very difficult times for him, but he would succeed. And he actually said that in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, who, as we learn, right, did not meet the Balatanya except for once when the Balatanya was three at his upshirn, that he kept separate. From the, the Baal Shem Tov understood the Balatanya was meant to be the Magid student. But the Magid said in the name of the Baal Shem Tov that he would have a very difficult, cha very difficult challenges in life and he ultimately would succeed. And the understanding of that was in the teaching and the dissemination of Hasidus and the battles that he would have to fight because the Misnagim were very fiercely, as we saw last week, opposed to them at that time. And that took another generation or two to kind of calm itself down. Especially, you know, after a generation or two, when people saw that Hasidic life was... Uh, replete with Shemirah Satorah Vahamitzvos, and that it was not just some kind of a fad or chasushalom, a cult or something of that nature. And when you see over one generation and two generations, oh, these people are for real. And that also made a certain impression uh, when they didn't end up, you know, going off to knows, you know, who, who know what, like they were suspicious regarding the followers of Shabbat Tzvi and those things. Yeah, and that was the hardest I mission. Don't know if there's a connection. You said Chabad is like an intellectual. Yeah, to an, ex to, to so an extent. To oh, yeah. And, and that's why the Magid held that the Balatanya was the perfect person to be there in Lita and in that area because he had that tremendous knowledge of Torah. It was a tremendous Lamdan in Nigla and in Nister, and he really had what it took to be convincing in Lithuania, which was truly a bastion of Torah, and so opposed to what they were doing. He was just the right person. He, he spoke their language. In learning, in Torah, in Lambdas, he spoke their language. Yeah, please. Sarah.
Hasidish and Mechagim, mm-hmm. they're really not Hasidish. Mm-hmm. There were there certain towns that sort of adopted certain things or certain families that did that? Where did that come from, that, you know, this thing of having some Hasidish and Mechagim? Um, this is just my opinion on it. I certainly don't know for sure. But I think what you have there is that there were people in their past who were Hasidim. And eventually, and those minhagim, you know, came down. I know a lot of people like that. They have Hasidish and minhagim in their family. They're not Hasidish. But their great-grandfather was, you know. And that's what happened. Because somebody along the line there was Hasidish, it kind of got passed into the family in that way. That's my take on it. No. My husband has that, but I thought it was the town that Rosh Hashanah had, but they sort of took on, like a lot of people took on certain things, but you think it's more yeah. somebody, yeah. somebody was and sort of introduced Yeah, sure. And also there were many towns who were, you know, swept into Hasidus, especially in Poland. And so, you know, towns, you know, started to uh, become Hasidish over the next hundred years or so, you know, towns that were primarily um, or almost exclusively Hasidish in Nermenhagen in, in Poland. That was not so uncommon. So when you had a town... Yeah, no, they, they would have become Hasidish. That's, that's what I think. Is it possible that there were some towns who actually didn't, where people didn't become Hasidish but took on some Hasidish in Hagen? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, please, David. Mm-hmm. And my father always talked about it, anything Hasidic, but not at all Hasidic. And I found out years later from my husband mm-hmm. that his grandfather was a Hasidic law, and his sure. father became un-Hasidic right. after that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the min- minhag of haircuts still remains in the family. For an upshare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, not for yeah. hair. You know, so it, it, I think, and you can't say he was Hasidic, so the next generation, he was also a pretty big rub in, in Warsaw. So he was ahead of the town, so he certainly wasn't, but he said he's not going to be Hasidish. So I think that's where people end up getting a little yeah. of both. And another thing, there's some roots. Many years ago, when my, the, some of the Menachem may not have been, uh, one in particular, uh, my son in law was in law school, and he was studying with a guy, a friend came to his house, and my grandchildren had long hair, you know. So the, this, this guy who's a guy, studying with my son-in-law, said, uh, oh, you let your kids' hair grow also? He said, you know, I'm German. In our family, in Germany, we let our hair grow long till we were three. Little kindler. Uh, yes. This wow. guy says this to my son-in-law, mm-hmm. and this is someone from Washington, and he has no connection to Yiddish guy. You know, it mm-hmm. was completely... Mm-hmm. So there is something, either they mm-hmm. saw Yiddin do it, and they did it, or... That's interesting. Yeah, you'd, you'd think so. Yes. Probably had picked it up from their Jewish yeah. neighbors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, please, Mia. What's that? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, that uh, people have so called mixed marriages. Yeah, right. Where I, like, I know my, my son in law, Rabbi Yosef's um, father was a Messiah, the Yeshiva, and his wife is of strong Hasidic descent. Right. So he always jokes, he has a mixed marriage. Uh-huh, right. And they, uh, you know, there's certain... Sure, especially after the war, it was not so uncommon because 
to find another Jewish person to marry, like that was the key. Oh. Who's Hasidish, who's not Hasidish, you know. We'll set that aside for now. We need to create Jewish families, you know. After the Holocaust, that was not so uncommon. Jody? Please, yeah. They were not Hasidish yet, they had the Upsharin. And also interesting. And also just, you know, sociologically, meaning in our circles, going back to your question, although I don't know what happened back then, and I suspect that there was Hasidic ancestry now, but if you look at the, at the Olam now, HaTorah, People do sometimes just pick up a minhug here and there. Like you took the example of an upshirin. That was not as popular when I was growing up as it is now, and all kinds of people do it, not, not just particular groups. Very big in Eretzisrael, right? Very big. So those kind of, you, sometimes there is just people pick something up and they do it. No fascinating thing, it's not really Hasidus, but it's based on Kabbalah that the way men put on tefillin, so we tie the bias up here, and then we wrap seven times down, down the forearm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or what, depending if you wrap in or out, right? So seven times down here, and then you make a shin on your, on your hand. These seven wraps that go around the arm, it's a minhug of the Arizal. It's from the Arizal. By the letter of the law, by the halacha, you could tie up the bias here, put a, put a couple wraps around here just to tighten it, and then go straight to your hand. These seven is from the Ariha Kodesh, it's Alpi Kabbalah. Everybody does it. Everybody. Chasidim, Misnagim, Ashkenazim, Sephardim. For whatever reason, all of Kla Yisrael, all Jewish men, took on this minhag from the Ariha Kodesh to go seven times down your arm. Why? Who knows? But that's an example of one of those things that, for whatever reason, everybody does that. Even though the halacha, it's not really required. Please. Please. Yeah. Right. That's right. No. Changing one way, right. changing the other yeah. Way. No, that that really it had to be done really under the authority of the Gedolei Torah who were behind this. And one of the, the main topics of halachic discussion in this area is people who daven Nusuf Sfard, or who used to daven Ashkenaz. So back, you know, a couple hundred years ago, they all daven Ashkenaz, except for those who follow the Arizal, and then Hasidus under the guidance of the Baal Shem Tov, took on Nusuf Sfard, which is a, a form of Nusuf Ha'arizal. So they did that under the authority of the Baal Shem Tov and, and his followers. So that's an example of a change that was made, and that's not such a push a change to make, but it can only be done really under the, under the authority of Gedola Yisrael. 
So anything they did to change a minhag or take on a new minhag, it would always be under the leadership of great people. Otherwise, you, you simply just can't, you know, change like that. Okay. Yeah. And so just to take it one step further, yeah. so let's say somebody who, does, who actually, that actual situation, mm-hmm. Dominic Nisafar, you know, is pretty much that why. Mm-hmm. So he went to Dominic Nisafar, mm-hmm. you know, that in his lineage, he did. Is it easier then for him to switch back? Or once you switch and you've been doing, your family's been doing it for 200 years, you don't do that. Yeah, the, the latter. The latter. You know, if it was a generation or two, that's the difference. E- either way, not Ashkenaz or Sfar. Just a generation or two, that's a different story. Like, you, you know, some people I know, they found out, oh, my grandfather died in this Sfar. I, I didn't know that. What happened? Well, they came to America, and American shuls, a lot of them were Ashkenaz, so they ended up davening Ashkenaz. But really, their family in this was Sfar. He can go back to Sfar. That's, that's no problem. That's already how their family was doing it for many generations. Where you get a bigger child is somebody who has had had a Mesorah for a long time and they want to do something else. So what do you do? And as you would expect, it's a machlokas, right? <laughs> Going Ashkenaz to Sfard, Sfard to Ashkenaz. There's a lot of discussion in, in Shilas and Chuvas about this. Yeah. Please. Yeah, and, and so sometimes that's fine, and sometimes that creates a little bit of family conflict. Because it's not the family's minhug, but they feel a certain attachment and reverence for the Rosh Hashiv, as they should, so they might want to take on some of those minhug. And a lot of those, oh, those things are not, uh, do, do not present a conflict. Like certain minhug you can take on, it's not a big deal. But if you're going against what your family does, that, that already becomes a different story and a little... little more of a shayla, how to, how to handle that. And one of the things to consider, of course, is, is shalom in the mishpacha, you know. Yeah, please. Her husband's been hugging, right. Yeah. In general, although I do know a certain group of women who stuck to their own nusach with because her husband said it was okay. I'm one of those people. <laughs> Uh-huh. She wants to do that. Yeah, so if that's okay at home, yeah. and there's really no reason why it shouldn't be in general, that's okay. But in, in truth, women do take on the minhagim of their husbands. That's the general mahalich of how it works in Klai Yisrael. I happen to be a hybrid myself. I call myself Ashkesvard. When people say, what nusach do you personally daven, Rabbi Goldberg? I say Ashkesvard. Because I grew up davening Ashkenaz, my father's Livracha davening Ashkenaz, my grandfather's did. They were Oberlanders, which is from the northern part of Hungary. My great-grandfather was a student of the Hassan Sofer. So that's the Nusuf of our, of our family. And uh, at, the same time, at a certain time when I became uh, Hasidish in my early 20s, let's say, and then the Nusuf, of course, was Sfard, where I was davening, so I ended up doing many things in Sfard. The truth is I, I can bat from both sides of the plate. So I, I can do Ashkenaz, I can do Sfard, but usually I end up doing, which is not really correct, a kind of a combination of both. <laughs> so I, I tell my kids, don't learn from what I do. Just I'll, you, you dive in Sfard and just let me do my thing, right? 
I can't get it all out of my system. There's certain things I have allegiances to because that's how I was raised, right? So I'm going to keep those things. I'll just share with you one thing. I mentioned to you putting on tefillin, right? So according to Ashkenazic custom, you put on tefillin, you wrap in this way, toward your body. Right? Yeah. According to Sephardic and Hasidic custom, you wrap out, going that way. Two different minhagim. Both of them are absolutely fine, of course, halakhically. So it's a question of minhag. So when I grew up and I became bar mitzvah, I was taught to wrap the tefillin inside, because yeah. right? I was not, not from a Hasidic home. So I'm wrapping this way, and that's Rashi's tefillin, which is the one everybody puts on. But Hasidim, when they get married, they put on a second pair of tefillin each day. It's Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. So does Fardim. And the, the difference between them is the way the parshios are placed inside the tefillin. It's a different order. So at, at marriage, um, Hasidim then put on Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. At the end of davening, each day we put on another pair of tefillin. So I have this dilemma because my Rashi tefillin I'm wrapping this way. You know? But the minhag amongst Hasidim is to wear a Benutam tefillin, and Hasidim are wrapping that way. Right? So what do I do? I do both. Right? So my Rashi tefillin goes this way, and my Benutam tefillin goes that way. That's why I'm a hybrid. I'm a hybrid Jew. So there's a lot of things in my life that are like that. Okay, very, very nice discussion. Okay, where are we holding in terms of time? Let's see what we got here. Anybody have a watch? Okay. So we'll start this parak. Right, we, I've got about ten minutes to do this. It's six after ten, or we have six minutes left. It's ten ten. Okay. Ten ten. It's a good number. We talked about this concept um, outside of the Sefer a few weeks ago. Now we're going to learn it inside the Sefer. We'll, we'll just begin it this week, and then we'll continue next week. And we're talking about now the kochos of Chachma and Bina, and then the Midos. Yeah, please, Linda. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am going to have class next week. It's, it's Hanukkah, and it's also Thanksgiving. And... Uh, <clears throat> I still will be here, Bezrat Hashem teaching, so if you're in town, I'll be here, come learn, why not? If, if you're not in town, so enjoy your menorah, enjoy your turkey, however you do that, it's, it's fine, right? <laughs> okay. Hine ha-seichel she-benefesh ha-maskeles. The seichel that we have, which means our power of intelligence. It's page 14, this time, page 14 in the, in the Sefer there. Our power of intelligence, our ability to think. Shahu hamaskil kol davor. It's that part of us which understands things, which has knowledge, the ability to perceive. Nikra b'shem chachma. That's called chachma, and if you break that down, this is brought down in many forum. Koach ma. Chachma is koach ma. Literally, that means the power of what? It's a very mysterious phrase, the power of what? But the idea is, what is that? What is that? I'd like to understand that. That's koach ma. What is that in front of me? Let me take a look at it with my mind and notice it for a minute. Take note and think about it. That's, that's chachma. The first flash of an intellectual insight 
that we have about something. And that's represented by the letter Yud. Then when a person puts themselves more into it, and literally it means they take that potential and bring it more into actual, that they reflect in their mind. To then try and understand something deeper and broader from something that you had previously grasped in your mind for a moment, an idea. It's not a bad translation for it. It's, it's an idea, just an initial idea. And now we take the idea and we explore it and we expand it and we go um, deeply with it. Nikra Bina. That's called Bina. So the first flash of insight, the kernel, the seed, that's chachma, the idea. The development of that insight is called bina. Vehein heim av ve'em. They're also called abba and ima, father and mother. Abba is chachma, bina is ima. Abba is chachma, ima is bina. And so what do they do? So just like a father and a mother come together and conceive and give birth to a child, so too, Chachma and Bina, these two powers of intelligence and understanding, they come together and they also conceive and produce. What do they produce? Hamolidos. They give birth to Ahavas Hashem, love of God, Viyurasso, fear of God, Upachado, also fear, reverence, Awe of Hashem. So in thinking about HaKadosh Baruch Hu and His greatness and what He does for us, which are mental activities, we produce emotion. Now this is a very strong theme in the Sefer HaTanya. And that's also why it gets its name Chabad, Chachma, Bina, and Das, because it begins largely, not exclusively, up here, in the mind and in the heart the powers of intelligence. And then those powers of intelligence produce emotion. Please, Mrs. Fran. Um, there are clouds, mm-hmm. and people are drawn to get mm-hmm. It's not usually intellectual. Right. It's emotional or Shabbos or tolerance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's neuros. Absolutely. So, I think it was different then. He was different. <laughs> the power of intellect was which much more forceful. And again, if you put it against the background that we were discussing and who the Balatanya was working with, right, a lot of that was intellectual. But it was not only, I shouldn't even say that, it wasn't because he was fighting this battle against the Misnagdim and he had to have an intellectual approach. This is who he was. Right? This was the shita that he represented, that you think deeply about things and then that will produce emotion, ava, yura. That's also, we'll see a little later, the Balatanya who was criticized by some of his colleagues is because they felt it should be more rooted in emotion and less rooted in intellect. A very delicate balance. We weren't just saying be emotional, but there was some subtle distinction 
And they argued with him on this point. And Mrs. Friend, I agree with you very much that nowadays, although the, certainly the, the reasoning you know, and the idea of coming to terms with, with Torah and Yiddishkeit and maybe people who are searching for it, they need to have that framework of ideas and knowledge and chachma, but much more so it's, it's weighted on the side of meaning, purpose, emotional satisfaction, emotional involvement. Nowadays, I, I personally believe that's much more the way to people's, people's heart. That came out of that, right? Intellectual battles. And nowadays it's not. You know, you, you approach people who are curious about Yiddishkeit, there's certainly an intellectual component to that, but much stronger, they're looking for a place to belong, they're looking for meaning in their life, they want a nice family, you know, uh, they, they like the atmosphere of Judaism, and those are all, of course, very deep things. Uh, for us, these are rooted, all, all of them in Torah. So it's a whole different approach. Uh, nonetheless, where he was at this time was mu- much more so, you know, up here. It's head and heart. Yeah, please, Mir. The whole world mm-hmm. was like that. Yeah. That, that, yeah. With rationalism yeah. and uh, the age of reason. Yeah. And he was dealing with that in the secular world as well. Yeah. The secular Masculine. world. Uh, yeah, they yeah. went, they underwent a yeah. lot, a lot of uh, intellectual activity. For people, sure. They thought more, and they, they were more philosophically inclined, the ones yeah. who were educated. And if you take that back another several centuries in history, you go back to the Rambam, right? Yeah. So the Rambam is addressing people who had, who had intellectual difficulty with Torah because of Aristotle. They were thinking about Aristotle and what he said. Is anybody nowadays thinking about Aristotle? No, nobody who I've ever met. Yeah, but Aristotle said, have have you ever heard that once in my life? I don't think so. And the Rambam wrote books because people were troubled in his time at how to reconcile or deal with Greek philosophy, Aristotle, and they're trying to be Torah Jews. It was that pervasive uh, amongst people at that time. And it's how, how we change from generation to generation and from century to century and how aware we have to be about what is bothering this door. Right? What, is it now? what is it, right? What is going on in this door? What's, what's bothering people now? You're asking me. I'm not answering because I'm not so sure. <laughs> so trying, trying to work on it. Linda, you had a question, please. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, Ken Zion, it could be. I certainly don't know. It's a nice thought. Could be. Okay. And have a great week. And a Freyla Chilchanaka. See you next week with God's help. The chapter in this? Yeah. Go ahead and you can keep that handout and bring it next week. Perik Yemel. In, in the very beginning of the Tanya. In the Likute Amora. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have a great day, everybody. Hi, Lisa.
Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>